Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, hello, everyone. Technically, it's the new year. If if you have a DeLorean and you're already back in the future, it's the new year. For us, it might not be anymore. <laughs> but it might be the old year. Well, I guess not. who knows? Who knows when it comes to the internet? Uh, but we we have arrived at Revelation 13. Dude, we're not gonna hit all of 13 today, but are we finally gonna find out if COVID vaccines were the mark of the beast? No, that'll have to be the second part of Revelation 13. Okay, but we're gonna get to there though, right? Oh, of course. I mean, I guess we will talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we can rule out that sometimes the best way to teach a topic is to teach what it's not. And so I guess we could say yeah. that right now. The COVID vaccine is not a mark, not of the the mark of the beast. I wrote a blog on that. Go to the German Truth Podcast uh, blog site and read it because it's yeah. not. No. Your Apple Watch, not the mark of the beast. No. But getting microchips implanted in your hand, which is the big uh, craze in the 1990s, not yeah. a mark of the beast. Soda cans? Not so the mark of the beast. No. Miguel uh, Gorbachev's aforementioned birthmark that we talked about last week. Not a mark of the beast. No, not so, at all. So we could just, we're crossing things off our list. We're checking it twice. And we'll find Wait, out. Wait, we tell them what the nice. mark of the beast is. Though. Oh, gosh. Then, yeah. And we'll yeah. see if they keep listening. Exactly. Yeah. You might not want to hear that one. Okay. Yeah. So we're in uh, chapter 13 right now. What are some things we just kind of tongue in cheek talked about some yeah. things the beast is not in its mark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are some keys to understanding the concept of what the beast is? Well, yeah. All right. So Revelation 13, and I, and I think we need to go all the way through 14, five. So chapter 13, verse one through 14, five, you know, 13, one through 10 describes one beast, 13, 11 through 18 describes another beast, but we can't understand at least the second beast and what's happening unless we include the first five verses of chapter 14 as well are in some ways maybe the most complex part of the, of the book of Revelation. Unfortunately, this passage has been just clouded by all kinds of different interpretations, mm -hmm. people that have discovered, you know, political events that are mm -hmm. fulfillment of John's prophecy. You know, so one, one commentator says, you know, quote, over the centuries, interpreters have tried to map out these symbols in one-to-one -one correspondence of the beast with particular historical figures or institutions. He says, this Dick Tracy apocalyptic decoder ring mm -hmm. approach has not served us well. Another thing to point out would be um, it's very hard to actually, you know, we, we joked about what the beast is not. Well, what the beast is, I don't think the American church is ready to hear it. Um, and so when we get done with 13 and, you know, the next couple episodes and we start, to, and I think the reason why is because prophetic voices are simply not welcome. You know, we like to think that we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We're good. They're the ones deceived. But the reality is, you know, you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, Vinny, and the people loved the prophets who said what they wanted to hear, and they ultimately hated the biblical prophets. You know, I think it's it's ironic, almost comical that, you know, we love Isaiah. And we, let's do a Bible study on Isaiah. Yeah. And, oh, you know, we're going to have all these people come to a Sunday school class or a small group because we're going to do Ezekiel and find out what it means. But these guys were hated and they were imprisoned and they were beheaded or they were sawn in two, according to the truth. You've killed Isaiah. the prophets, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, Which one of the prophets did our yeah. fathers not kill? You yeah, know, yeah, Acts yeah. chapter seven. And so I think we need to realize the fact that maybe we have not read the text well. So the um, prophets were not a Tony Robbins motivational speech. No, no. <laughs> of, so. of the early, you know, ancient Near East. Okay. Yeah, that, that's good. I'm trying to think if we've done... Well, we talked about prophets in the intro to this yes. because we talked about what is prophecy. So right. way back when uh, we did that, the prophet had a business card. If Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, if they had, if they carried around business cards, it would say Isaiah covenant enforcer. Like that's what a prophet does. So yeah. he's calling the job description of the prophet is to call the people to repentance. And no right. one wants to be called to repentance. No one likes that. How often do right. we... How often are we ever called out on our stuff and we're instantly, yes, you're right. Thank you so much. Even if we agree and we are convicted, I, I know I'll, I'll use yeah, that yeah. statements. It's always, it, there's that first struggle where I want to defend it against it. I want to push back or it's like, okay, you're right, but I don't want to admit you're right. Usually right. there's a sense of discovery that happens there and wrestling uh, on our own. And that's just one person. Uh, if, yeah. if you're calling an entire community to repentance, it's not going to be just, oh, you're right. Let's walk the aisle and repent now. Well, And that's what makes it hard. So when the prophets call them to repentance, because you haven't kept the covenant, 
the, the next thing is the people didn't believe the prophets. Oh no, yeah. we're fine. We're good. Yep. We do all these. And look at the book of Isaiah. We fast and we keep yep. all these festivals and we, we do all these things. And God's like, I hate your festivals. I hate your sacrifices. Yes. Don't you, don't you understand these things? Hosea says so, the same exact thing in yeah. Hosea six. Yep. And what makes it hard then is when you have this whole church that all believes this and someone comes on and says, guys, you're all wrong. How could we all be wrong? Look at we're good yep. people. We're doing yep. good things. And so it becomes we're very, God's very chosen. We can't do yeah. wrong by default. Right. Yeah. So we it's and it's a big problem. And as, as you know, Vinny, you know, if you're listening to this somewhat in the end of well, the beginning of 2024, we're doing a series on the war on Gaza from Israel and Gaza. And we are radically, radically on the wrong side of this because we're actually doing harm to Israelis, harm to Palestinians, mm-hmm. harm ultimately to the United States. You and I talked to the offline uh, yesterday. This is this is we are we are this is not good and we are deceived by the beast this is exactly what i think is happening in revelation 13 well, and to bring it back to there even to connect it to chapter 12 where we were at last week uh, one of the things that we did is we brought in the imagery of this eagle right uh yeah. that, that's connected yeah. to, it's, it's associated with god but we associate that with america right and think of all the language that we've used over the last couple hundred years yes uh, where we've hijacked biblical language for yes. america so what you know, you get a Ronald Reagan, or I think I, I think he's actually quoting Abraham Lincoln, who said it first. But uh, talking about America being a city on a hill. Yes, um, uh, George you know, Bush said that also. Okay, yeah, right after nine eleven. Yes, yeah. All, uh, many uh, American leaders have said this. The fact that we say "God bless America" after at, at the end of every political speech, someone says it right. Uh, right. What do we mean by that? Are, are we saying that this is what we have? We have a right to this, uh, or are we are we yeah. crying out like what what is the motivation behind that? When so we, we just have a history. We could just talk on and on. We and this is go back to our Christian nationalism uh, series that we did a couple of years ago. But when we have this entitlement that we says like, no, we are the new Israel. This goes back all the way to Puritanism. It goes back to this idea that we are having an exodus, just like uh, the Israelites had an exodus where we're fleeing from this oppression. And now we're in our new promised land. So guess what? We could wipe out indigenous people because they're savages and we could have this golden age of this new promised land because we're the new Israel. You would never, ever think that you're going to do something wrong. And I think it's in the same problem. If you grew up in a dysfunctional household, one of the things you like, you don't often critique your own family. Sometimes it's it's something is really obvious that, you know, it's not right. But a lot of times we grow up in houses where we just assume that we're the normal runs and everyone else is wrong. Right. And it's not until afterwards you realize, oh, my gosh, my family had this level of dysfunction. Yeah, but you don't yeah. realize it till you're removed from it. You learn what health is. And it's the same thing, I think, in our American context where we just assume by default, we are always the good guys. We're always fighting the bad yes. guys and God blesses us. It's on our money. It's on our flags. It's on our pledge of allegiance. Therefore, like God's got our back. Uh, so we've run ahead a little bit. You and exactly. I a great conversation. <laughs> but for those listening, this is exactly what Revelation 13 is discussing. Yeah. It's, the, it's blasphemous claims of the beast, blasphemous claims of the empire, taking the role of God. Uh, who is like the beast in Revelation 13? That statement is actually applied to God in the Old Testament. Who is like the Lord? Mm-hmm. And so when we when we take biblical language and apply it to America or apply it to something else or commercialism, uh, we are succumbing to the beast. And yes. Yep. Yep. Also, also, you. I think you misspoke. You said uh, apply it to the umpire. I think you meant empire. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, get into. Everyone knows it, though. Let's be honest, Rob. We're not, this yeah. isn't slander right now. Uh, let's get into chapter thirteen. So um, we're gonna, you know, pop into fourteen. But what are the things that we want to maybe set up? We we already kind of gave the the context and maybe even the conclusion, which is not. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Sometimes. We kind of went to the end. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, Hey, here's the glasses we need to read these through. Um, what do we want to talk about to say, okay, are there obstacles we need to remove? Sometimes we need to deconstruct how we've been told how to read something or how, what do we want to do uh, before jumping into the text? Well, the first thing to understand in terms of revelation 13 is what it's doing in, in the role of the narrative of revelation of the book of revelation. So this account, as I said before, beginning in chapter 12, verse one is expanding on the war against the two witnesses. Mm. So we learn in chapter 12 that the war against the two witnesses is nothing other than the war that the dragon, Satan, has been waging against the people of God since the beginning. Genesis chapter three, verse 15. I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. And so now what we're finding out is this more details. And now what we learn is 
that the dragon actually empowers two beasts to carry out the war. In other words, the dragon's not waging war himself as much as he's waging war through these beasts. Hmm. So these beasts are the ones whom carry out the war against the people of God. Uh, the second thing is, of course, is that in order to understand the imagery of the beast and what the beast then means, you know, who is it or what is it that's actually carrying out this war, we have to go to back, back to the book of Daniel again, as we did last time. And this time it's Daniel chapter 7. Now, to understand Daniel chapter 7, which is really difficult because it's apocalyptic language, mm-hmm. uh, we have to understand what's happening in, in Daniel chapters 2 through 7 mm-hmm. and how John's employing that understanding in this particular passage. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. We're kind of, once again, jumping ahead to the end of yes. 13. Yeah. And it, we we actually, this is not the first time we've done this on this podcast. When Way back when we were in Romans, we had Scott McKnight on because we interviewed mm-hmm. him to talk about his new commentary that are, yeah. he, he, he said it, he titled it reading Romans backwards. Yeah, that's right. yeah. And so sometimes it's a helpful tool to read something backwards. Um, and we know that exactly. John's not trying to write linearly anyway, so it's okay. We could, we could, we could work ahead and uh, be okay with that. So do you want to start at the end and kind of look at the beast and then uh, set that, define that, and then we could move ahead with it? Yeah, I actually think that's helpful too, because people, if we say at the beginning here, this is what the beast in Revelation 13 yeah. is. Then you have that in, in mind, for those of you listeners. And then as we go through the, the explanation of that, okay, that it starts filling in those gaps instead of like, okay, where are they leading me to? Where are they leading me to? Yeah, you're not so trying to do, do a decoder thing the whole yeah, time. Exactly. To fit, to right, so the together. beast in the book of Revelation is Rome. There's no question about it. It's Rome, but it's not going to be limited to Rome. And so that's, that's one of the problems there. The 666, the number, the number of the beast is Nero. And we'll, and we'll we'll explain all this and why we why I believe or why we believe that this is the case. But what we're going to find out is that it also is not limited to Nero. Can so, we just to, just to, to say what yeah. we mean by that? There's oftentimes in the biblical story where it's referring to Egypt and Pharaoh. Yeah, right. And it, it literally means Egypt and Pharaoh, but it might not always be limited to Egypt and Pharaoh because that could just be an imagery for anything that's ever happening to oppress God's people in the right. evilness of empire. So yeah. it's the same kind of concept, right? Yeah, yeah. When when later prophets come along to describe Babylon and it's mm-hmm. and what it's going to do to the people of Israel, they describe it like Egypt. Yeah. Uh, so, but John's describing what's happening in his world mm-hmm. as the embodiment of the beast, and it's Rome and Nero, who was probably I believe Nero was dead. Uh, you know, John's writing after the time of Nero. Nero was this embodiment of the beast. So the idea is that the beast is claiming loyalty and worship that belongs to God. Remember, in the biblical story, humanity was made to bear God's image. So going back to Genesis, it's, and by the way, Genesis is always an important framework. So we were supposed to bear God's image, which meant we were going to rule for God. You know, we did a study on Genesis, if you want to listen to those podcasts earlier. Image of God is, means that you represent the deity, represent the, the God or the emperor. Um, and the goal, actually, then for humanity is to bear God's image was to make God known. Now, the problem happens in Genesis 3 is that humanity decides to rule for self. In other words, what you see in the Genesis narrative is if God's the king and we are going to be his rulers for him and make him numb, then he's the source of wisdom and he's the source of how, how to rule well. But humanity decides, you know what? I think we can decide right and wrong for ourselves. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We need to eat from that tree because we need the knowledge of good and evil to rule well. But God said, don't eat from it. So do we listen to God and do we get our source of knowledge of good and evil from him? And I think thereby eat from it when he tells us to, or do we just say, you know what? It's good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. Yeah. Let's go ahead and let's eat of this. Let's make decisions of right and wrong for ourselves. And that's what humanity does. The result then becomes is that the beasts are ruling over humanity instead of humanity ruling over the beast, meaning that mm-hmm. humanity has become the beast. We were supposed to rule over the beasts of the field and care for God's creation and making God known, but instead we actually became the beast. The beast then ultimately takes the glory that's due to God himself, and as a result, it becomes blasphemous. So Warren Carter, who we've had on the podcast, mm-hmm. we'll have him again, he says this. The first beast described in Revelation 13, 1 through 10, represents the Roman Empire, and particularly its emperor. It's depicted in ways that recall the emperor Nero, who's regarded as the epitome of evil. But then another scholar comes along, and I don't think that Carter would disagree with this, and we'll have him on to discuss this. Uh, Eugene Boring, who wrote a commentary a number of years ago, he says, the beast is not merely Rome. 
It's the inhuman, anti-human arrogance of empire, which has come to expression in Rome, but not only there. All who support the cultural religion in or out of the church, however lamb-like they may appear, are agents of the beast. All propaganda that entices humanity to idolize human empire is an expression of this beastly power that wants to appear lamb-like. And then one more quote here, uh, Herman Kester says, Revelation recognizes that evil goes beyond any one political system. If Satan is the ancient serpent who's been active since the dawn of time, then it's clear that evil was at work long before the rise of the Roman Empire. Yet John recognizes that evil does work through the political systems and that this is what is portrayed in the vision of the beast from the sea. Recall that Satan, he continues, is the seven-headed, ten-horned dragon who evicted who was who evicted from heaven and confined to the earth. Outraged, the monster stands on the seashore and conjures up a beast in his own image. Like the satanic dragon, the beast has seven heads and ten horns. It's the chapter 13 that we're going to look at. And it rises from the sea to do the bidding of the evil one. Politically, this means that the beast can claim no ultimate authority. It's the puppet of a higher demonic power. Right, so I think this is giving us a little context. Now, I like to use the word empire here that the beast represents empire. The problem with that word is we think of empire like big nations, mm -hmm. right? We don't think as like a little country, like, you know, maybe Peru as empire, but I'm using empire to refer to nations and, and things that control or rule. One of the things that we'll get to later on, but again, we're kind of giving the end of the story before we get to the beginning is that empires today are actually ruled oftentimes are influenced significantly by global corporations. Mm -hmm. In other words, corporations have as much influence or more influence over the empire yep. than the empire does itself. They, they, they take its bidding because that's where the money comes from. So there's a lot to be said for, you know, global capitalism, mm -hmm. right? And I know that's, oh, that's bad. Are you advocating for common? I was like, no, I'm not advocating for mm -hmm. any of these things. I'm just simply saying this global capital world with these mega corporations are controlling empire. And as a result, they're ruling over the nations uh, uh, and creation. So one last quote, and it's this. Uh, Vistor, uh, Victor Vestel says, uh, like Rome, the image of the beast looks good and appealing to us. We may benefit from it greatly as many people benefited from, from the Roman Empire in the first century, although I think many people might be an overstatement. Uh, in so doing, however, it blinds us to the corrupt and destructive reality of the thing and prevents us from seeing the idolatrous allegiance we have given to it. Mm -hmm. I think that does, and there's a lot more to be said, and we've kind of opened the can of worms, but we'll, we'll talk about it more later. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. And even just to talk about or just to mention in terms of the flow of the narrative, one of the things that we've talked about is what we'll start seeing in, in Revelation is the imitation, the counterfeit that we see yes. in the, the beast versus God. And this is where we start seeing this. So even uh, the comment that you made, the beast claims the loyalty and worship that belongs to God. Well, what right. did we see in chapters four and five already? So this great throne room scene, it's the worship of the one who sits on the throne of the lamb. Now we're starting to see that same thing, the the worship that belongs in the beast it, it, or that, that the beast is demanding, that belongs to him. It looks it to be, it's in a different kind of way. And, and we'll see in chapter 13, it's through things like war and military power. And it's also through economics. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's the imitation that, that this is what the beast is looking for. So these are those parallels that we want to look for. I would see this even helps us understand something like the mark of the beast. Yeah, we have a mark of the beast, but you also have a mark of God's people, and so yes. these are these are the sorts of things that we'll start seeing play out now more because this really is when that the false worship uh, starts really being displayed in the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's um, a lot more to go into detail here, but we're going to save a little bit of that for, for yeah. the end. Yep, yep. Uh, so 
we're going to spend time on chapter 13. It's going to roll into 14, but we're also going to look at chapter 17 and 18. Yeah. And we'll, you had already quoted some scholars. Hopefully we'll get Dr. Carter back on. We're going to start bringing more scholars in to give insights, especially yes. to see, okay, how do they understand these texts? Yes. Uh, especially as, as how do they understand these texts and its application to today? I was going to say, from a I don't want it to be just our voices. Standpoint. I think we exactly. need to hear, hey, look, the scholarly world, lots of them are saying this. We need to wake up. Yeah. 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 Um, if we were to go back to Revelation, I forget if we talked about this in the intro, but there's a couple different views on how, on when this was written. Right. The, the majority of scholars say that it was probably written between 85 and 90 ish. I know that's the view I, th I think you yeah. said you hold to, sure. but there is a view that says Revelation was written pre 70 and it, it's, it's probably having to do with describing the destruction of the temple and in Jerusalem. Obviously you would agree. We would agree that the beast is Rome. And right. so that that's one way that they would just have a really uh, strong view of saying that, Hey, this is something that happened uh, before the, the destruction of the temple. This view is right. often known as the preterist view, meaning before, is this something that is interesting to, to bring into the conversation right now? Well, it is a little bit because, so what's happening is this. So you have basically three views. There's obviously more than that, but sure, three sure. basic views of what's happening with this beast. This beast represents ancient Rome and 666 is Nero. That leads some to believe that it was written during the time of Nero. Now, 70 AD is that critical date in the first century because that's the year that the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jesus seems to predict that that's going to happen. And the war is between 66 and 70 AD. Uh, and Nero is the one emperor that, that really persecutes Christians in the first century. And so those who believe that it's written before 70 AD, take the persecution idea as something that's a reality now in the book of Revelation, not something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, it's something that's happening now. And John's describing Rome and in particular Nero. And then they, and some will say it has an application beyond that, but some will say, oh, and it only applies then. Yeah. So Revelation is only this backwards thing looking back then. It has an application to the future, but it's not describing the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the preterist view. Some say, the popular dispensational view that we discussed a little bit on our last episode, say that John's describing Rome, but he's actually looking at it in the future. That's a futurist interpretation. And it's a future revived Roman Empire. And so that's mm -hmm. why you have those who will say, oh, well, it's a 10 nation confederacy because he's got 10 horns. Uh, maybe it's the European Union because that's that's in Europe. That's the Roman era uh, area, uh, things of that nature there. And they look against the United Nations, because maybe the United Nations is some uh, embodiment of the beast. So this is a futurist viewpoint. So the first viewpoint is that it only applies to the Roman Empire of the first century, maybe before 70. Some say it only applies to a future empire. Uh, and then a third view, and there's, there's a few others, uh, which is the one I would adhere to, and that is it's Rome, but Rome that is embodying all empires in history. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's certainly what's going to happen in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. Mm, okay. We read of these two beasts. You have yeah. the first beast coming up in 13.1 and then the second beast in 13.11. Right. And one's coming from the sea. The, the yes. first one comes from the sea. The second one comes from the land. We've already talked about the imagery of the sea, the, you know, the ocean, if you want to call it uh, the water. Yeah. Uh, what's the significance of one, one coming from each? Uh, well, remember, remember that the dragon standing on the sand of the seashore. So the dragon standing on the seashore, one comes up from the sea, one comes up from the land. Most likely what's happening, we won't get into too much detail here, um, but you have uh, the ancient understanding of the sea creature and the land creature, the, the, the Leviathan and the behemoth from Job 40 and 41. It, what's interesting is that in the in the Greek version of the Old Testament, mm. which we call the Septuagint, mm -hmm. in Job chapter 40, verse 15, which is usually the behemoth, the Greek actually uses the word beast. Mm. So when John says, I saw beasts coming up, right? It's actually the, the same word that's used in, in uh, Job chapter 40, verse 15. So it's probably the idea of uh, in Genesis chapter one, you have the sea creatures or the, the, the tanin, which is the dragon, the serpent. Uh, which were made in, by, by God. And then you have the land creatures, the, the, which is the Nahash, which is the serpent or the snake. And so you have this sea creature, a dragon, and you have the land creature, which is a snake in Genesis chapters one and two, and then obviously in Genesis three. Um, and this becomes the behemoth and the Leviathan. That's probably what's the idea here. These are creatures 
that in the ancient cosmology, ancient origin stories, the gods have to subdue and slice them in half and defeat them. In the biblical world, these creatures come into the story by by going, well, actually they were made by God and he doesn't have to defeat them. He's already, he's already, you know, he's the sovereign one over them. He created them. Uh, there's this uh, behemoth Leviathan theme going on in the background. Hmm. Okay. So we've talked about Daniel and how crucial it is to understand Daniel and, you know, the, the beast of Daniel seven is definitely the background, the old Testament background for what John's doing. How, what, what is the specific way that we would connect the two? Okay. So we'll go into some detail on this as we proceed, but Daniel seven and revelation chapter 13 are clearly working off one another. John's John is certainly reading Daniel 7 and the four beasts of Daniel 7. Let's read Revelation 13, 1 through 10. We haven't done that yet. Okay. And then we're going to jump to Daniel 7. So if, you have, if you're listening here, having your Bibles ready, let's go to Revelation 13, 1 through... Uh, well, we can do 1 through 10. That, that's fine. And then we'll yeah. do uh, Daniel chapter 7, 1 through 9. Okay. So this is Revelation 13, 1 through 10. Okay. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over Every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Even those whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So that's Revelation 13, 1 through 10. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. So now let's go to Daniel 7, 1 through 9, and we'll see some comparisons, and then we'll we'll draw these comparisons out. Daniel 7, verses 1 through 9. And it's, it's more than the first nine verses, Sure, that's enough for now. Okay. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took its seat. His clothing was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning uh, fire. Uh, I'm going to finish out verse 10. And Certainly. a stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. 
Okay, so we have a courtroom scene, as you, as you can tell from including verse 10 there. Uh, now, you may have noticed, if you're listening here, some parallels between Revelation 13 and Daniel chapter 7, and we'll draw those out even more, probably in our ne next episode. But there's four beasts in Daniel, there's one beast in Revelation. But the four beasts in the, uh, the one beast in Revelation 13 has seems to be a composite of all four beasts of mm -hmm. Daniel 7. Uh, and so the total of the number of heads in Daniel's four beasts are seven heads. The one beast in Revelation 13 has seven heads. It's like a beast, like a leopard, like a lion, like a bear. In Revelation 13, the one beast looks like a leopard, like a lion, like a bear. So this is obviously quite parallel. John's clearly resonating with Daniel chapter 7. Now, in order to understand Daniel 7, we can understand what's happening kind of in the larger scope of the book of Daniel. So chapter 7 of the book of Daniel fits in the very center of the book. Daniel's, uh, the book of Daniel kind of divides into two sections, the first six chapters, and then chapters 7 through 12, the last six chapters. In the first six chapters, others have a dream, uh, and the meaning is revealed to Daniel. In the last six chapters, 7 through 12, Daniel has a dream, and he needs help interpreting it, and an angel comes and helps him understand the dream. Now, the other thing that's happening is the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are kind of like just narrative, they're stories, you know, Sunday school lessons. If you went to church as a child, you probably learned the stories of the first six chapters and, uh, you know, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown in the fiery furnace and Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. You heard those stories. You probably didn't study the last six chapters in mm -hmm. Sunday school classes because it's apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you have what we just read here, this imagery of apocalypse, apocalyptic imagery, and the last six chapters are all apocalyptic. So you kind of have these two divides between the first six chapters and the last six chapters. The first six being historical and others have dreams and Daniel interprets it. The last six being apocalyptic and Daniel has dreams and he needs help interpreting it. But there's something significant actually that ties these two sections together. In chapter two, verse four, it says right in the middle of the story, and we'll look at chapter two in a few minutes. It says, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew. Same alphabet. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's kind of like um, Spanish and Italian. Some of these Romance languages are very, very similar. So all of a sudden you're reading the, the Hebrew text of the book of Daniel, the first, two the first chapter through chapter two, verse four. And all of a sudden it breaks out into Aramaic. Because in other words, he not only says the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, but Daniel starts quoting the Aramaic. But the Aramaic doesn't end when mm -hmm. they stop speaking to the king. It continues all the way through chapter seven. In other words, chapter two, verse four, through all the way through the end of chapter seven are all in Aramaic. So you want to- And then it goes the, back to Hebrew for the last- It goes back to Hebrew. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. 12. Yeah. yeah, yeah, eight, eight through 12. Uh, and so you kind of want to divide the book of Daniel between one through six and seven through 12. For genre. For genre, right? But we're told by the, by the Hebrew and Aramaic that there's a connection between mm -hmm. seven with the earlier part of the book. Now, the other thing that's happening is the book of Daniel is not about Daniel mm -mm. and his three friends. As all apocalyptic literature is, it's about God. Mm -hmm. And as I think we said this last time, the message of the book of Daniel was to comfort the Jewish people who were suffering under Babylonian rule, to be reminded that God's in control. Because think about it, as we've said before, they're sent off into exile. So Daniel and his three buddies are in Babylon. And that means the Babylonian gods are better than the, the God of Israel because Babylon defeated Israel. And that's just the way it worked in the ancient world. If you conquer us, your God must be more powerful than, than our God. And it also is depressing for the Israelites because God promised us this land. He promised this blessing. You know, we talked about the covenant last time and that covenant faithfulness. And that was tied to the land. And we're, we're out of the land. We have no hopes of going back to the land. So the reminder in the book of Daniel is God is faithful. He will bring about his promises and he's going to restore his people. All right. Now, the next thing, and jump in anytime here, if you have any, any thoughts yeah, or yeah, comments yeah. about Vinny. Um, and that is, the next thing is the book of Daniel actually is written in a chiastic formula. Mm -hmm. And chiasms are very popular in the ancient world, especially in the prophets. They appear maybe not as often as some scholars want to make them out to be, but they're actually very common and they appear very much. And chapters two through seven in the book of Daniel form a chiasm. Well, now, and two the, through seven yeah. matches the Aramaic language. Yeah, two through seven is all in Aramaic. Well, starting in verse four, at least in chapter two. Mm -hmm. right, now, a chiasm is a phrase that like, if you were to outline it, maybe you have like point A mm -hmm. and then point B and then point C. And then the next chapter, like, so chapter two in the book of Daniel is point A. There's a, a vision of four kingdoms. 
Chapter three, point B, and that's Daniels and his buddies. They get thrown in the fiery furnace. Chapter four is C, and that's Mm -hmm. pagan king who usurps authority and claims to be divine. Chapter five is actually another C. So it's A, B, C, C, B, A. Mm -hmm. Chapter five is about a pagan king who asserts authority before uh, God's authority. One of those kings in chapter four repents. One in chapter five doesn't repent. Chapter six is B. And remember, the first B was Daniel's three buddies, and they get thrown in the fiery furnace in in Daniel chapter three. Now the second B is Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Mm -hmm. And then chapter seven is the point A, and that is a, a vision of four great kingdoms. So these mirror each other. They mirror each other. And, so, and in a shorter way, just to use two examples, if, if this is new for people, from a biblical standpoint, Genesis 1, or let, let us make man in our image, in the image of God, he created them. You see how it like mirrors itself yeah, right. uh, in, in, from a popular standpoint, ask not what your country could do for you, but what you could do for your country. That Those are both really short examples of chiasms yeah. or a chiastic The, the best structure. one is... I'm stuck on Band-Aid because Band-Aid stuck on me. <laughs> nice, nice. Very good. That's yeah. just, right. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I put some other ones there. The, you know, do I love oh, do you, you have because you're there? beautiful or are you beautiful because I love you? Right. Oh, um, that's, then, uh, uh, that's funny. That's actually from a, a musical, uh, The Cinderella by Rodgers and Hammerstein. There's some dork, there's some that. dork knowledge right there. Okay. I would not know that. How about don't sweat the petty things and don't pet the sweaty things. How about you so, could pick your friends and you could pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. No, that's not one, but that's, that's funny. Not, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll delete that one out there. Thank you, Vinny. Uh, good effort. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a B for effort. A B for effort. A, a B for effort. Yeah. So when we recognize the chiasm then, two and seven parallel, three and five, uh, six parallel, four and five parallel, mm-hmm. clearly parallel. It's mm-hmm. really apparent. Chapter two, remember chapter seven's in apocalyptic language, but chapter two's not. It's a vision. And Daniel says, here's the dream that you had. And let me tell you its interpretation. And in that dream, there are four earthly kingdoms that are defeated by God's kingdom. That means it's going to help us understand chapter seven then, because in chapter seven, we have a vision of four beasts Mm -hmm. and God's kingdom. And those four beasts were told in verse 17 of Daniel seven, these great beasts, which are four in number are four kings who will arise from the earth. So that's going to help us understand what's happening in chapter seven, then, is recognizing the chiasm and the parallel with chapter two, and it's four kingdoms that are defeated by the kingdom of God. Hmm. All right, we just went through chapter seven. How does this connect in parallel to chapter two, though? Because we all know uh, the Daniel okay. two story. We know about Nebuchadnezzar and the statue yep. and not bowing down, and we know about chocolate bunnies and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> what does it have to do with uh, beasts coming out of the ocean? Okay, so let's look at Daniel 2 very quickly, or very kind of give us an overview. If you have your Bibles, if you're listening along, kind of follow along here. In Daniel chapter 2, the king has a dream, and he's anxious to understand the king. Verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, saying, Oh, king, tell us your dream, and we'll declare you the interpretation. And the king decides, you know what? I don't like those rules, Hmm. because you could just tell me anything. That's basically the idea, right? How do I know that you're really giving me the proper interpretation Here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me what the dream is and its interpretation. Now, the Chaldeans had all these books. This sign, you know, this bird meant that, and this cloud meant that, and this animal meant that. So they would hear the the dream, and then they'd go to their books and say, here's this interpretation. Mm -hmm. But the king's like, yeah, I'm not going to do it that way. You tell me the dream and its interpretation. Otherwise, you're going to die. And the Chaldeans are like, "Uh, king, that's not the way it works. Uh, And the king says, verse 8, uh, you're bargaining for time. It's not going to work. If you don't make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. And that is you're working together. You're going to lie to me. I'm going to, therefore, I'm going to kill you. The Chaldeans basically said in verse 10, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Verse 10, the Chaldeans said, there's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of a magician, conjurer, or, Mal- or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing that which the verse 11, moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there's no one else who could declare to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. So verse 13, the king sends out a decree. All the wise men are going to be killed. But that means Daniel and his three buddies are also going to be killed. And so they look for Daniel, verse 13, to kill him. And so they come to Daniel and Daniel's like, hey, what's going on? Like, well, you know, the king made this uh, decree and you got to die. So verse 17, Daniel went to his house and informed Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or 
Rack, Shack, and Benny, as they're more popularly known. In verse 19, you know, Daniel goes and prays to God. God, verse 20, let the name of God be blessed forever. Verse 21, it's you who change the times and the epics. You remove kings and you give wisdom to wise men. And he's like, I, I kind of need this wisdom right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, verse 22, you reveal the profound and hidden things. You know what's in the darkness. Uh, to you, verse 23, oh, God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you've given me wisdom and power. Even now you've made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel, verse 24, goes and says, hey, king, guess what? Don't kill the wise men of Babylon. Take me, you know, take me to the king's presence. I'll declare the interpretation to the king. He tells the Arioch, the, the, the servant there. Verse 26, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen its interpretation? Daniel said, you know what? As for the mystery which the king has inquired, neither wise men nor conjurers, magicians or diviners are able to declare to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who mm. reveals mysteries and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Now, remember that phrase, you might not recall this if you're listening to the podcast, but we discussed that in Revelation chapter one. John quotes that phrase, what will mm -hmm. take place in the latter days, and says what will take place soon or what will take place quickly. Verse uh, 28 again then says, this was your dream and the visions in your mind. As for you, verse 29, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. Same exact phrase, just changing the end in the future. 31, you, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue was large and extraordinary splendor. Verse 32, the head of the statue was made of gold. It's breasts and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut. Now the stone's going to be the kingdom of God. It's, to, it's Jesus, the kingdom of God. A stone was cut without hands. And without hands in prophetic literature means made by God. Something made by human hands is like an idol, a block of wood, some carving of a deity. But made without hands means made by God. So you continue looking until a stone was cut without human hands or without hands. And it struck the statue. God's kingdom strikes the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. Verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain. Now remember, mountains mean kingdoms, empires. At the top of a mountain is where the palace was, but it's also where the temple was. And it filled the whole earth. Uh, the idea of Eden filling the whole earth. Mm -hmm. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we'll tell you its interpretation. Now, this is going to get Daniel, it's not going to get him in trouble because the interpretation is going to be good as far as the king to whom he's speaking to. Yeah, verse, yeah. Verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, power, and strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hands. And he's caused you to rule over them, and you are the head of gold. No problem at all. Verse 39. After you, there will rise another kingdom. So it's like after you. It's not like you're going to be overthrown by another. You know, it, you're good, right? You're the head of gold. You're good. And it'll be inferior to you. Again, another thing that makes the king good. Daniel's not going to get his head chopped off because the interpretation is not going to get him in trouble. Verse 39 still. Then there's another th a third kingdom of bronze. It'll rule over all the earth. Verse 40, then there'll be a fourth kingdom. So there's four kingdoms. Strong as iron, it crushes and shatters all things. Verse uh, uh, 40, let me skip down to verse uh, 44 now. In those days, or in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So there's four kingdoms, and then there's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, you know, the four kingdoms, but it itself, God's kingdom, will endure forever. Now, inasmuch as you saw a stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to you, the king, what will take place in the future. There's that phrase again, what will take place in the future. So the dream and it's true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So there we go. We've got Four kingdoms, one after the other, essentially, that are destroyed ultimately by the kingdom of God. And now we can go to Daniel chapter seven. Okay. So, because we just went through a lot of stuff 
give the the tweet version of chapter two then the overview of chapter two and it's highlighting okay. what how, how we need to connect this to chapter how we need to read chapter well, seven in light of chapter two can you do it why don't you give the highlight view of chapter two okay so the, the highlight is it, it's starting off things to remember why it would be like the question why would we have this in two different sections of the same book if it's talking about the same thing you had mentioned how from a, a genre standpoint two different things are happening Remember, chapter two is Daniel revealing a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter seven is an angel revealing something to Daniel. Right. So so you have those kind of parallels there. And and while Daniel, like you said, Daniel is presenting information to a king, all the details aren't in this. Daniel is getting more information from the angel, though, to actually say, hey, this is what's happening in the kingdom of God. So I think just from why would it be in two different places is Daniel's getting more information because this is actually something that is relevant to the people of God, not just giving information to a pagan king. So what you have is the commonalities here, the continuity between two and seven. You have four entities being described. So in Daniel chapter two, it's going to be set up as head, arms, belly legs these Head, four feet, parts. shoulders knees and toes exactly okay, uh, okay. knees and toes knees and toes <laughs> uh you so you have these four parts of this image of this uh, statue right this correlates into chapter seven what we've seen where you have these four different kinds of beasts that happen correct and so we should we should read these in light of each other that they're matching. It's not merely one statue. It's the statue has four parts for a reason. And so we should identify these with the the four beasts that we see popping up. And it doesn't matter that there's four separate beasts in one image. The, the point is it's an imagery that's happening here. Yep. And ultimately these this whether you call it these four beasts in chapter 7 or this four part statue in chapter 2 these are representative of kingdoms of these of this world, which are very powerful. Yeah. But ultimately, these things are going to be destroyed by right. God's kingdom because God's exactly. kingdom is the everlasting kingdoms that pops out. And that's exactly. the that's the, the continuity that you see in both of these stories. It's not that there's eight kingdoms that are popping up and then two different divine kingdoms that happen. You right. know, it's, so it's these are two different things that are right. God's talking right. about. It's the same thing told in two different ways, but yep. with clear overlap and continuity. Yeah, yeah, with two different genres. Yeah, yes, one yeah. one in the vision to a king, one in the vision to Daniel. Yep. that's right. Now, also, let's also make sure we understand this: the New Testament is coming and saying the kingdom of God has come in mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. The destroying of the kingdoms of the world has already begun. So we don't want to go like maybe a futuristic or a dispensational thinking going, oh, this is something that's going to happen in the future. That when God comes, when Jesus returns, he destroys all the kingdoms of the world. In fact, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Actually, let me go ahead and cite 1 Corinthians 15 because I think it's relevant here. First well, even as, as you're yeah, looking ahead. for that, even if we stay in Revelation, how does it begin in chapter one to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins yep. by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom yep. priest serving his God? Like this is already something that's happening, even yep. in the first, you know, in chapter one. So even if that's you right. even if you even if you're a futurist view on Revelation and you don't think you know chapter four and beyond are happening in the future, everyone agrees chapter one is in John's present, and it John already says we're already a kingdom. Right, yeah, and First Peter says you are a royal yep. priesthood, exactly, a holy nation. exactly. Yeah, this kingly language, or Jesus tells the disciples in Luke twenty-two, "I'm granting you authority to, to yes. rule over the twelve tribes of Israel." First yes. Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse twenty-five says, "For he must." It refers to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, mm-hmm. and then it says he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So what you see in Daniel is okay. The stone comes, crushes all the kingdoms, and it's over. What you see in the New Testament is, well, the stone comes and it crushes the kingdoms, but those kingdoms kind of remain for a little while, which actually Daniel 7 is going to describe. Um, and the establishing of God's kingdom takes place maybe um, over time. Mm-hmm. And the present to refer to Revelation chapter 1 is Christ has already come and established. He's the king. And now he's appointed us to be his kings and queens yes. to rule for him and to spread his kingdom so that it overtakes all of the earth and it fills the whole earth, and then Christ returns. So that's kind of the, the, the scope of what's happening there. So Another way we could look at that is to say Matthew 28, the Great Commission, mm-hmm. all authority in heaven, the realm of God, and on earth, the realm of the devil, has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the nations and make disciples. The kingdom is spreading out into all the nations because right. I have all the authority. Colossians 1.13, you have been 
delivered from the kingdom of Satan. I forget how it's described there <laughs> into the dominion, the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved son. Like yeah. this is the thing that has been happening even for in Paul's time in the fifties or sixties or whatever it was. So yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So we're really setting the stage because what we're going to figure out by the time we finish these couple of chapters here, or this chapter in particular mm-hmm. is we have to reorient the way we think in yep. terms of the kingdoms of the world versus the kingdom of God. Okay. So let's go to Daniel chapter seven. Uh, and, and kind of get started with this, and then we'll go back to Revelation 13 in, in our next episode. So Daniel chapter 7 uh, begins by, it's a courtroom scene, as we noted already. Uh, you read verse 10 earlier. The, the court sat and the books were open. God's the one sitting on, on the throne. Uh, he's the ancient of days. He's, he's the judge. The throne was uh, uh, blazing. It's judgment. There's a chariot king there. The God who's sitting on the throne has uh, white hair, and he's that's his wisdom, his the hair of his head was like pure wool. Uh, his throne's ablaze. So uh, God's the judge. He's the one that's going to dis- uh, judge with wisdom. And then there's this little horn that makes all these boastful uh, statements. So one of the beasts has 10 horns. Verse 11 says, I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. Its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Mm. And I think what that's getting at is the coming of Jesus's kingdom has destroyed or defeated the other kingdoms of the world, but they're given an extension of life for until an appointed time. Okay. Now kind of going through it a little little bit quickly, Daniel chapter seven, verse 18 says, uh, well, verse 17, I think I alluded to it earlier, but Daniel seven, verse 17, these great beasts, which are four in number are four Kings which could be understood as for kingdoms who will arise from the earth. Verse 18, but the saints or the people of God of the highest one, God himself will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. There you go. You got four Kings and then the saints, God's people, they receive the kingdom forever. It's all good and done. Actually, it's not that simple. There's going to be a period of time where they're both ruling. So verse 19, I desired to know the exact meaning, Daniel says, of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. It was really dreadful, had teeth of iron, its claws of bronze. It devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Remember, the the outer court is trampled in the book of Revelation chapter 11 there. That's kind of for you there, Vinny. Um, Verse 20, the meaning of the ten horns uh, that were on its head and the other horn which came up, which before three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, We'll see the beast in Revelation 13 as a mouth uttering great boasts. Mm-hmm. Right, verse uh, 21. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints. So remember, they're giving an extension of life. And in that extension of life, they're waging war with the saints and overpowering or overcoming them or conquering them. So remember in chapter Revelation chapters 12 and 13, what we discussed was we're giving more detail about the war that's waged against the two witnesses, which is God's people. Chapter 12 of, of Revelation said the war is waged by the devil. Chapter 13 now says it's the devil that empowers these beasts or the beast. The beast of Revelation 13 is all four beasts of Daniel 7 combined into one. And what's happening in Daniel 7? The beast is waging war mm-hmm. against the saints and overcoming them. Mm-hmm. Now, verse 23, the fourth beast will be the, a fourth kingdom on the earth. It'll be different from all the other kingdoms of the earth and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the 10 horns, don't worry about all the detail. The king, the, out of this kingdom, will 10 kings will arise. Another kingdom will arise after that. He'll be different from the previous ones. Verse 25, he will speak out this one king against the most high blasphemy. Mm. Wear down the saints, the highest one, persecution, suffering, oppression, making war against the two witnesses. Verse 25, he will intend to make alterations in the times and laws, and they'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. It's going to happen for three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Verse 26, but the court will sit for judgment. His dominion, this other beast, this this other kingdoms, will be taken away, annihilated, and and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms on the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, verse 28, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, 
My thoughts were greatly alarming and my face grew pale and I kept the matter to myself. Why? Because the end of the story should be, you know, Daniel should be rejoicing, right? I mean, look, the, the kingdoms are given to the saints, mm-hmm. but this kingdom is one that comes to the suffering of the saints because they're overpowered and they're trampled on by this beast. I think that's what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 13 that we'll go into more detail in our, in our next episode. Nice. So, so we need to make sure like we've spent time here next week. Yeah. We're, we're using this, what we just talked about as the context for next week yep. to get back into Revelation 13. We kind of did our application up front <laughs> in mm-hmm. a sense. I mean, because we haven't really got gone through all of the Revelation yep. 13, but hopefully uh, the listener should be able to infer some of why yep. we started with that. So Ida, what, what are some takeaways that we would want to say, okay, let's remember this in light of this from a, a you know an application standpoint or takeaway standpoint? Uh, well, I, mean, I, I can note a couple of things here. I'm interested to see what, what takeaways that you might have if you want to add something to these or whatever, if you, if you do. First off, God's going to intervene. Mm-hmm. and put an end and, and establish his rule, right? Uh, what we find in the biblical story, in the book of Revelation in particular, but obviously the whole biblical story, is that Christ wins through suffering, right? So Daniel and his, and his buddies in Daniel chapters one through six, they can live and succeed in the pagan court, though sometimes they face hostilities, fire, and you know even lion's dens. But in chapter seven through 12, the powers of the world are wild beasts, and the faithful will inevitably, inevitably suffer persecution and sometimes even martyrdom. But at the end of the day, God wins. Hmm. I think the second thing that we notice here is that God is in control of the evil kingdoms. So what we've talked about in the book of Revelation is that I think people misread Revelation when they say the seals and trumpets and maybe even the bowls are God's wrath. No, that's what's happening when the kingdoms are, over, are ruling. Mm-hmm. But God's in control of that, and God's sovereignly in control of that. And ultimately, these human kings that appear to be free to do whatever they want, actually, there's a throne in heaven to whom they're ultimately subject to. And then the people of God, the third point I would make is that they will be given the kingdom, Mm -hmm. as Jesus promised his disciples in Luke 22, but through suffering. And I think Luke 22 actually spells that out as well. You know, I used to, remember when I sent you out, Jesus says in Luke, in Luke 22, to the, uh, the 70 and the 12, referring to Luke chapter 9 and chapter 10. He's like, you didn't need a belt or any money bags. Or He's like, well, now, if you don't have a sword, buy one, which they take him literally. And of course, mm-hmm. Peter uses the sword to hack off the guard's ear. And then Jesus <laughs> like, stop using your sword. That's not what I meant. What yeah. I meant is it was okay earlier when I sent you out, but now I'm sending you out and it's going to be difficult. I think those are at least three things I would start with. So what are some things that you might want to add to that? You know, one of the things that was hitting me is how we just still, we, we just missed the point. And so we'll even see, uh, you're using terminology of beasts are described as, uh, or people are described as beasts. Yes. And the point is that it's, it's this order in terms of how things, the, the way we shouldn't rule. Um, you know, go back to the garden. Adam is to rule over the beasts. And I think beast language is describing the way in which people are ruling wrongly. Right. Right. But what do we do? And and this, especially, um, you know, you and I can look back in our tradition as Western or white guys. And how often do we wrongly apply language to people who we will call beasts or, Mm. uh, or barbarians or savages? So, Native Americans, African yeah, people yeah. who we, we make slaves because they're just basically property. Even yeah. in a post 9-11 America or post 9-11 West, we look at the Islamic world with a, a bigotry and we they're they're beasts. And like you look at what Hamas is doing and they're doing beastly things. Like let's not yeah, let's sure, not absolutely. at all whitewash that. They are doing yeah. beastly things. And so uh, so is 9-11. It was beastly acts. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, however, they are not beasts by nature ontologically right. is that we're by nature they are not beasts and i am not unbeastly because i happen to be a white guy in the west anyone could do beastly things i, I i'll say this martha stewart was beastly in mm. when she was involved in ponzi schemes and when she's uh utilizing insider trading insider trading to capitalize financially which is going to be hurting other people on the fringe like that is beastly stuff. I, I I'm thinking of a gentleman who I know who lives in my area, who is just indicted for um, 
basically running a Ponzi scheme because he was swindling older people out of tens of millions mm. of dollars with a, mm. a few other people. Uh, and this man pr- claims to be a Christian. He's like, no one's going to know who this is. It's just, a, it's a local thing that happened, yeah, right? Yeah. Claims to be a Christian. He's wiping out old ladies in their, yeah. in their, uh, in their savings. So he could get rich. Right. And he claims right, to be a Christian right. too. That is beastly, even though it's not going to be a savage as Hamas murdering women and in children, but it's just as beastly. Right. And, th- and that's yes. the thing we-, we need to remember when Psalm two says that all nations are raging against God, that includes even white collar criminals. It's not just these rogue things that are happening in the streets of a third world country. Right. It's us as well. And we need to take that seriously. And this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Like the beast can even capture things that don't look scary. Yeah. And there's a larger picture, I think, that's important to frame. And I've done a lot of this in, in a lot of the blog posts that I've been doing over the last couple of years. Uh, and if you've been in any of my classes, you're hearing this more and more. So what we need to wrap our mind around then is what does the kingdom of God look like compared mm-hmm. to what do the kingdoms of the world look like? And, and we'll finish with this. One of the key things is that the kingdoms of the world rule through power, mm-hmm. military might, and violence. And I, I use the expression that the cross is the epitome of how the kingdoms work. Yeah. The cross is what Rome puts you on to manifest their power and to keep you in subjection. In the kingdom of God, the cross is what Jesus goes on to manifest his power by suffering for the sake of others. I mean, yeah. in the kingdoms of the world use power, Jesus uses love. The other thing that's important to understand is that the kingdoms of the world use their power and those in power often rule for the sake of those in power to maintain their power. Yes. And Westerners don't like hearing this. When they maintain their power, it's almost always at the expense of the poor and the marginalized. And that's why there's so much in the gospels about blessed are the poor, the good news of of the gospel being preached to the poor, because the kingdom of God is going to overthrow the kingdoms of the world who are bringing oppression primarily to the poor and the marginalized. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and then come follow me. And it's overturn what you were doing, oh, rich young ruler. You got rich at the expense of the poor and I want you to give it back to them. And that's so hard for us to wrap our minds around because we think we're the good ones, right? Mm -hmm. We're good and we don't realize that our wealth and our power has been obtained largely, not absolutely, and I'm not saying that we're all bad, but largely at the expense of the poor. We started with free land, which we stole from the Native Americans, Mm -hmm. and then we used free labor, which is the backs of of slaves, to gain our wealth. We need to stop and go, oh, maybe we are participating with the beast a lot more than we realize. The next thing to bear in mind is we look at Revelation and go, okay, the beast is really obvious. It's really apparent. But John was writing to people who it was not apparent to, who had been captivated by the beast. He's going to say in Revelation 18, say, come out of her, my people, right? The Mm -hmm. harlot, come out. You guys don't realize you've been deceived by this. So the people to whom John's writing don't see it. So for us to go, oh, it's real obvious what the beast is. Ah, be careful about that. Maybe the beast is more seductive than we think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Cool. All right. Well, hey, uh, we're in 13 next week. We're, we're, you yep. know, m- please remember all the Daniel stuff. It's crucial to understand yeah. Daniel two and seven in order to make that connection to 13 because 13 is not written in a vacuum. And so remember this as we go into next week and keep reading and rereading it and see yeah, what absolutely. are the types of things, especially in chapter seven, what are the types of things that you see God doing? What are the things that you're seeing God's people doing? Uh, what are the types of things that you see the beasts doing? Compare that with chapter two, compare that with 13. You don't need to go through and have all the knowledge of decoding it all, but just from an observational standpoint, what parallels are you seeing? How might John be using Daniel? And I think the more we just read that and saturate, uh, the, the better connections we'll, we'll continue to understand the story with. Yeah, excellent. Cool. All right, everyone. Hope you continue to have a great new year. For us, we'll have a great new year. <laughs> but uh, we'll see everyone next week.
want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.